Thanks for listening to this message. For more information about The Exchange, visit www.theexchange.cc. Or you can join us for one of our Sunday gatherings each Sunday at 8.30, 10, and 11.30 a.m. And I'll be honest, uh, my heart was beating fast standing to the side at 8.30 this morning. My heart beats fast in this moment. Uh, And for those of us in the room, for those of us online, for those in overflow, these are special moments that we share. They are not anxious thoughts or anxious nervousness. Man, there there is weight and there is substance to what we do in these moments when we come together and we do not approach it lightly. And I love the declaration that we just made that, God, we need you. We can't do it on our own. God, it is not in our ability. We cannot do it with our strength. We need you. And for those that don't know, my name is Josh. Uh, I have the privilege of being the worship and creative pastor here at The Exchange. I've been here for six and a half years. Uh, I do not teach nearly as often as I used to when I was also wearing the student pastor hat. Man, I had the privilege every single week of delivering truth to sixth through 12th graders. And man, it was a privilege of my life. Um, But I count it a high honor every time I get to step into quote unquote big church and get to deliver truth uh, to God's people. Man, I love when we take God's word and his people and we align our hearts together to hear what it is that he has to say today. And so I just pray that you would lean in with me. Uh, And I've called today's talk Heart Condition. And as any good pastor would do, I did a deep dive into heart conditions because that's what you do when you pick a title, because you need the title to make sense. And so if you would indulge me for just a few minutes so that my research and my facts are of some value, I'd love to share a few things that I found. Um, we did uh, some research and realized that in a survey taken as recently as 2019, that 48% of Americans suffer from some type of a heart condition. Meaning that if I was to pull this room or to pull you online or pull you in overflow, then one in two of us are experiencing some form of a heart condition. And yes, I did a deep dive into the common types of heart conditions, and I'm so glad you asked for them because I want to share them with you. So the common types of heart conditions are coronary artery disease, high blood pressure, cardiac arrest, congestive heart failure, arrhythmia, stroke, and congenital heart disease. And I also assume if I was to poll us today that some of us are experiencing one or more of those heart conditions or some of us know someone who's experiencing one or more of those heart conditions. Case in point, my dad suffers from high blood pressure. And it is somewhat known that a couple of years ago, my dad was rushed to the emergency room for an emergency surgery. They had to place a stent in what they call the widowmaker artery of his heart because he was in full cardiac arrest and he had a 99% blockage in that artery. So I understand what a heart condition means. I understand what it could result in if it's left undealt with. And I would say that for most of us in this room, a physical heart condition is either in or near most of us. But I would say today that there is a spiritual heart condition that exists inside every single one of us. And I think we have to address that concept. And I'd love for you to allow me to build some validity to that statement today. I want us to go to scripture. I want us to go to Genesis 4 today. And so if you've got a copy of scripture, I would love for you to take that out. A hard copy, a digital copy. The verses are also going to be online behind us. But I want to revisit this Old Testament story that some of you may be familiar with. Some of you may not. But I would love for us to discover some truth together today. And so if you'll go to Genesis 4, we're going to focus on verses 1 through 8. And this is what the story tells us. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. 
Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. And then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And before we dismiss this text to go and rush to some application point, I have learned that it's important for us to establish context and to derive content of what we read so that we can arrive at biblical truth. And I don't know if you caught it or not, but there's a lot happening in those eight verses of scripture. We we revisit Adam and Eve, the first two human beings created by God in this earth. They give birth to two sons, Cain and Abel. We learn that Cain is a worker of the soil. He's a farmer. We learn that Abel is a keeper of sheep. He's a shepherd. We learn that at some point, these two brothers bring an offering to the Lord. Cain brings fruit of the ground and Abel brings something from his flock. We see that God accepts one offering. He rejects the other. We see that this builds up anger and resentment in Cain in which he responds in sin against God and against his brother. And whether you realized it or not, what you laid witness to as I read that text is the first murder in human history. There's a lot going on in eight verses of scripture. And so what I want to do today is ask a couple of questions to get our minds pondering in the right direction. And so I pose this question. Is one of the two occupations mentioned in our story more important than the other? Meaning, is shepherding more important than farming or farming more important than shepherding? And I would argue no, that although they are distinctly different, they both serve a purpose. We as human beings were called to rule and subdue the land and the earth and the animals of it, and both of those occupations accomplish that task. So I would call them equal in their value. So if the occupations are equal, let me ask you another question. Is the product of the occupation considered equal? Meaning, are fruits and vegetables considered equal to lamb meat or lamb meat considered equal to fruits and vegetables? Do you go for the fruit salad or are you going for the euro? And although that might be debatable because I'm going euro every single time, I would say for the case of our, our story today, that they're considered equal in the sense that they are the product of the occupation from which they derive. And so therefore you cannot value one over the other because they both are the produce of the occupation. So if the occupations are the same, and if the product of the occupations are considered the same, then the question has to be asked, why would God accept one offering and reject the other? And I believe as we do the hard work, I believe as we dig into the text, what we see is this conclusion, that Cain brought something and Abel brought his best something. Cain brought something and Abel brought his best something. I find the word choice of fruit in the passage really interesting because we're really just one chapter removed from where fruit kind of played a big deal in the fall of man and the entry of sin into the world, right? And it was a big deal for Adam and Eve, and let's be honest, all of humanity for all of time. 
fruit kind of had a central role in that. We see the fall of man. And what I want to do is I want to revisit Genesis 3 for just a second and connect some dots to Genesis 4. So if you'll go with me, we're going to read about Eve, what is considered the fall, where Eve is tempted with the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So Genesis 3, 6 would tell us this. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And so I'm left to ask the question, I don't know if you're left to ask this question, but what is the deal with fruit, right? Like, I like fruit, y'all like fruit, online y'all like fruit, apple from time to time is a pretty good thing, banana, we call nannies at our house, those are pretty good things. What's the deal with fruit? We are four chapters into the creation of all things for all time, and fruit has been a central player in the entry of sin into the world and also played a major part in the first murder of human history. What's the deal with fruit? I would say nothing. I would say it this way, that fruit is the smoke and the heart is the fire. Fruit is the smoke and the heart is the fire. If I were to ask you what Eve did wrong in the garden, then you may be tempted to answer that Eve ate the fruit. And although your answer is technically correct, I would challenge you to say, although she ate the fruit, she actually had a heart condition that she wanted to be godlike. She was not satisfied as creation. She wanted the knowledge of creator. And so a heart condition was her actual problem. If I was to ask you what Cain did wrong in the presentation of his fruit as an offering, you might be tempted to go, well, he just brought the wrong fruit. And although technically you are correct, I would challenge you to say that it was a heart of complacency where Cain said, just enough is gonna be good enough today. And I think God is calling us to understand this at a deeper level, that fruit is the smoke and the heart is the fire. But what does that mean? It means that our actions are always tied to a deeper rooted issue. Like when I overeat, the food that I consume is the smoke. But the stress or the worry that causes me to go there, that is my fire. When I lose it on my kid, because y'all do that too. When I lose it on my kid, my yelling is my smoke. But the feeling of inadequacy that I have that I can raise this person well, that is my fire. When I click things that I shouldn't click, The images that my eyes consume, that is the smoke, but my fire is a heart of lust. And it's only when we're willing to do the difficult work of digging past the smoke to the fire that we can actually begin to bring about change. And every time you dig past the smoke, the fire will lead you to one place. It'll lead you to your heart. That every evil that mankind knows comes back to one place, a heart condition. And yet I believe that the most important part of any act of worship, any offering that we can present to God is our worship, is our heart. So this is the human dilemma. My heart is the root of all the evil of the world and yet my heart is the thing that God desires as an offering and a sacrifice to him. How do we get to a place where we can understand that our willingness and our surrender of ourselves to God and his will means more to him than the execution of the task that is in front of us? Meaning that our posture is more important than our production and our attitude is more important than our action. How do we arrive at this place 
I see over and over again in scripture that God's grading scale is different than ours. And I think we have to go back to the place where we understand the way that God sees us versus the way man does. Let's go to Psalm 51 for just a second. Verses 14 through 17. David is crying out to God and he says, deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God, my savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. This is what's important. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. In other words, David understood that God was less interested in what he brought and more interested in the motivation and the why behind what he brought. Let's be honest, King David, ruler of Israel, had access to all of the best of physical offerings that he could bring, but he understood that that is not what would motivate God's heart. It was a humble approach. It was a heart that cried for mercy that would bend the Lord's ear. Go to 1 Samuel with me for just a second. 1 Samuel 16, 7. This is Samuel preparing to anoint the next king of Israel, and the Lord reminds him. He says, Samuel, do not consider this man's appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And we are consumed right now. We are bombarded in a world that is full of advertising and let's just be honest, almost mind control at this point to push us towards self-improvement and behavior modification. And we live in a world of filters and highlight reels and we're all aimed at pleasing the people around us. We're, We're looking at elevating our prestige among those around us. And I fear what is gonna happen is we're gonna become so consumed with our horizontal that we miss the very heart of God. I really think that's where we're headed. Psalm 46 through eight, this is the passage that we used to end last week's gathering. Starting in verse six, it says, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, here I am, I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. I find it resoundingly clear in scripture that the thing that God desires most in our act of worship and our offering and sacrifice given to him is our heart. And yet scripture would also be the very thing to tell us that the heart is the most deceitful and wicked thing about us. That's what Jeremiah 17, nine says. It says the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? He can So how do we wrestle a self-pleasing, deceitful heart to this place of God-honoring holy sacrifice? That is the human dilemma. Because we are drawn to our selfishness. We are drawn to our desires. But he is calling us out of those things to elevate and look upward. And we have to be willing to do it. So here's where we're gonna get practical for just a few minutes. I would say today that your motives matter. The motivations and and the thought and the intention behind your action matters. I believe that God is concerned with 
what you do as a preparation more than he is about what you do as an execution. Because let's be honest, man, we, we are a results-driven society. We will get the job done at all costs. We will check all the boxes, and we will feel good at the end of the day knowing that we arrived at the place that, based on our grading scale, we did good, right? But what if in the pursuit of doing good, we miss the opportunities to do best? Let me ask you a question. Uh, has anybody ever been the recipient of a gift card? Anybody ever been the recipient of a gift card online? You've ever been the recipient of a gift card? Has anybody ever been the giver of a gift card? Would you also admit that? I'm about to blow your cover, okay? So just go with me. I'm not saying in every single situation, but often the giving of a gift card is associated with a lack of effort in a gift, right? Let's just be honest for a second. Meaning that either... You ran out of time. You struggled to come up with what you felt like was the best thing. It didn't sit high on the priority list. And so the deadline came and you went, gift card, right? Let me ask you a question. At some level, the recipient of that gift card is grateful. But how much more could that gift have meant if you put time and effort and intentionality into it? That you, that you pursued the right gift versus just the gift. Like you, you took their likes into account. You took their dislikes into account. You, you, you listened to the hints that they dropped, right? What is more meaningful? A gift that has heart behind it or just a meaningless gesture? And fellas, maybe gift cards don't resonate with you, so let's go somewhere that you understand and you live. Let's talk about the grill for a second. I got any, anybody that likes the grill? Anybody invite me over for lunch in a little bit? We're going we're gonna to throw it on. There are two types of people that grill, people who can and people who can't. Um, just being honest. Let me ask this question. As much as the choice of meat that you put on the grill matters, would you agree that the preparation of that meat matters more? Okay. Let's play would you rather for just a second. You want to do that? Would you rather... Have an unseasoned, overcooked, hunk of junk, dry as it could be, piece of meat that you can't recognize, thrown on your plate, or would you rather have a meticulously prepped, masterfully marinated, super, super juicy piece of meat that like you're almost tempted not to eat it because you just want to sit and admire it, right? (laughs) But you're going to eat it. I mean, we know that. What tastes better? A meal made with intention or something simply thrown together? I think the answer is easy. But so often we leave God lacking in what he truly desires of us because we don't, he doesn't just want our something. But so often we are just, we, we are driven to just give him something. It's good enough, God. He's desirous of your best. He's deserving of your best. That is what his heart desires. And Celeste and I, we begin to feel a shift in our hearts 
about a year and a half ago towards this idea that, man, God is after something more than just something that we do. He wants the very best of who we are. And so what we did is we adopted a phrase with our worship team and our tech team where we began to tell them who you are is more important than what you do. And at this point, they've heard it at nauseum. And I hope that it begins to register in them who you are is more important than what you do, meaning that we are gonna focus less on your technical execution of the task that you do on a Sunday morning, although the bar of excellence remains high. You just saw that a few minutes ago. And we're gonna begin to focus intentionally on you as a personal disciple and follower of Jesus because ultimately, that's what you will answer for. One day you will stand before the Lord and that's what you will answer for is how did I love you? How did I serve you? How did I do what you asked me to do with what you put in my hands in the few short years that I live on planet earth? And this is what we knew, that the authenticity of that personal relationship growing would ultimately benefit us corporately. Because an authentic heart that pursues the Lord will always resonate louder than empty talent will. And I'm not gonna talk to you musically today, but I'm gonna talk to you pretty directly and tell you this, your talent isn't enough. And your personality isn't enough and your ability to get the job done isn't enough. And there may be people all around you that would heap praise on you and tell you how good you did at your accomplishments but you begin to focus so intently horizontally that you forget that the person that is actually receiving your offering is always vertical. And my fear for myself and my fear for my family and for my team and my fear for you is that we're gonna become so consumed with getting the praise of man and pleasing the eye and ear of the people that are around us that we lose heart of what God really wants that we would be so good at pleasing the eye and the ear of man around us that we would actually disgust the heart of God. And that's heavy, and I'm gonna let that sit for just a second. Because far too often, that's what we do. We rely on what people around us are telling us. We rely on what we can see. We rely on our grading scale. And I think far too often we actually miss the mark of what God is really asking of us. Because I know a God who's gonna judge the obedience of your sacrifice before he judges the fragrance of your sacrifice. I know a God who wants to be pursued and wants to actively pursue you. I would say this, that God cares so much more about you then he, he cares so much more about you and your heart, let's say that, than he does about your work that doesn't have your heart in it. He is not interested in your effort to just bring him something if you're not willing to actually enjoy what the purpose of bringing something is, that you would experience the presence of God. And we're too busy to even stop and linger or ingest the whole purpose of bringing the sacrifice in the first place. So quick to just do the thing, to just check the box and move on to the next thing. 
God's going, I just want you to linger. I just want you to sit. I just want you to be in awe of who I am simply because of who I am. I think that is his heart for his people. And I believe this too. I'll say this before I go to the next thing. We are so driven by our work. And we know that you can't earn your way to heaven. We, we at least hear that, but, but we still, we try so hard to choose the right thing, do the right thing. Because somehow we feel like that gains us merit with God. What I would say is this. When you would surrender your heart to God and you would focus less on your task and more about the effort with which that test, task comes because the heart and the motive is right, the character of your work will, will begin to reflect the character of your God. And then everything works in harmony. Everything works together. But when you're driven by your effort, God is not interested in your effort. God is interested in the heart that precedes the effort that you give. I wanna go back to Genesis 4 for just a second. And we're gonna close our time together today. I wanna see two things. And I would love for you to see them as well. I want you to see the human reaction and the God response. I would say this, Cain made a choice, right? Cain knew that what he was bringing to God was less than what God had asked him for. Cain knew that it was not his first and his best. Cain was blatantly hoping that just enough was gonna be good enough on this particular day. And so all of Cain's choices, he now presents to God as an offering and a holy God rejects a less than acceptable offering. And Cain, rather than going, I tried and I failed, Cain went, how could you, God? My good enough's not good enough for you? I find it funny how quickly we can pin our decisions on somebody else. Rarely is it ever our fault, right? I didn't bring less than. But if Cain would have done the hard work and looked back, evaluated, and gone, and God, I, I see it. I, I got it wrong. This story could have gone so differently. But a holy rejection automatically equaled resentment in Cain, even though the decisions were Cain's the whole time. But I want you to see the God response. And I'll be honest, I, I read through the God response and I almost overlooked the God response the first time I read the story. God's response to Cain in his choice of what he brought and the anger and resentment that he chose when it was rejected. And I think it would be important to note here that a rejection of a less than adequate offering is not automatically a rejection of you. I need you to hear that. Because God didn't immediately cut Cain off because he brought less than. God reached out with the heart and the love of a father and he tried to help Cain see where he got it wrong. So I would say this, when, when we have what is less than rejected by a holy God, that is not a rejection of us. That is God pushing us to go deeper. His rejection of your mediocre is a press to go deeper. 
That's his desire. God, with a fatherly heart of love, he leans in and brings correction, and he warns Cain that this is what will happen if he does not address his heart condition. Genesis 4, verse 6. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door, foreshadowing what is to come. It desires to have you, and you must rule over it. Cain didn't have to kill Abel. Cain chose to kill Abel. Rather than dig through the smoke to the fire, he allowed himself to go to the place of anger and resentment rather than doing the hard work of, God, I'm sorry. God, I see where I got it wrong. God, I understand that I could have done better. I should have done better. He allowed his heart to go to a really ugly place. And in this case, sin literally led to death. It literally led to death. And I think if we're honest, we're a lot more like Cain than we are Abel. I think too often we're content to just check the box with what we think is good enough and look horizontally at how people seem to approve or disapprove of that and adjust according to our grading scale. And I think we are quick to miss that God is actually calling us to something so much greater. He's calling us to truly know him so that we can truly make him known. And here's what happens when it doesn't go our way. I mean, we act just like Cain. Like it hasn't changed from the third human being on earth to present day. We go to the place of anger and resentment. How could you, God? It's not my fault. It's gotta be somebody else's fault. We, we, we grow in bitterness and we grow in this place of distance. And we allow our hard and calloused heart to press us into a deeper level of sin. We run from God rather than run to God. Cain chose resentment when he was met with holy rejection. Oftentimes we choose resentment when we're met with holy rejection. I believe Cain's response and I believe our response should be a response of repentance. Holy rejection should call you in, not push you away. But you have to be willing to do the hard work. You have to be willing to look inside. You have to be willing to see where you got it wrong. You have to be willing to go, God, I recognize that you are a God of second chances, but the responsibility of taking the second chance falls on me. That you're asking for something more. I think like Cain, we are often guilty of the human reaction and we miss the God response. I think we are guilty of bringing unacceptable sacrifices to a holy God more often than we would like to admit. I think that we forget the holiness and the majesty of God. I think that we come too quickly, sometimes forgetting who it is that we're actually coming to talk to. That the creator of all things wants to bend his ear and hear your voice. I think sometimes we're too quick to throw up a casual prayer or a quick devotion the scripture of the day because it would take more effort to actually carve out the space to give God the time that he actually deserves. 
I think sometimes we line the Bible up just right and the coffee cup in the background and we throw the filter over and we come up with a great quote and we spend 10 minutes on the photo and we spend two minutes in his word. And really what we're doing is we're actually seeking the praise and the applause of horizontal people and we're missing the whole point of the sacrifice to begin with. I think far too often we fall short. I think that God desires to have a personal relationship with us. I think it's a personal relationship like Adam and Eve had in the garden before the fall, walk with you in the cool of the day, intimate, I wanna know you. But the only, place you, only way you get to that secret place is to approach God with awe and wonder of who he is. It can't be one or the other. It has to be both. I think we're guilty of calloused hearts. I think we are guilty of resenting God and others when if we would actually do the hard work of self-evaluation, we would see that it's where we got it wrong, not where somebody else got it wrong for us. And so the responsibility then falls on us to approach it. I think we miss the God response. I think oftentimes we miss the God response. I think we miss a father's plea. Why are you angry? Why are you running? I told you, if you would just do the right thing, it would be accepted. Don't let sin in. It crouches at the door. It waits to devour you if you will let it. And I think God's going, I can't choose that for you. The human dilemma, the wrestle of the human heart is how do I lessen the deceitful part of who I am, and allow the part of me that God wants to see, a holy and pleasing sacrifice, a life of worship lived before him. How do I elevate that? I I wanna say this, and then we're gonna close a little bit different today. God never asks us to do something that he hasn't done first. God gave us his best when he gave us Jesus. We were literally deserving of nothing, but he gave us grace and hope and redemption and mercy. And I believe that if you listen He's calling you to a place of repentance. And you're gonna have to do some digging deep. You're gonna have to dig past some smoke to find the fire. But he's calling you to a place of repentance. Not resentment. Repentance. He wants to hear your heart. Thanks again for listening to this message. For more information about The Exchange, or to find out how you can connect with or support what God is doing, visit www.theexchange.cc. Now go, be the church, and give life.